Hi everyone, and welcome to the Silvatis podcast. So Lisa also holds a master's in clinical social work and also has a philosophy degree from Warwick. So along with Eleanor and the co-founder of What's Your Grief, Lisa and Eleanor wrote this charming, wonderful, amazing book called What's Your Grief? I'll hold it up. And I'm going to ask Lisa a lot about the book. I think it's before I start gushing over it, Lisa, I'm going to get you to talk about it a little. But I suppose what I wanted to do was just have you introduce why the book, how the book came to fruition, and then I'll start telling you all the stuff that I loved about it. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, every time people ask how the book came to be, I think having a little context for what we were doing before the book is really useful. Um, Eleanor and I, we met, and at this point, probably oh god 18 years ago I don't know it's been a long time we met a long time ago um working at an organization where we were uh supporting people in a mental health capacity who were coping with grief and loss primarily from traumatic and unexpected deaths and so we were working with people literally from that moment in the hospital when they would find out that their loved one had died through two years after the death and in that, we were doing a lot of traditional types of grief support. Uh, we were doing, you know, g- groups, and we had this background in mental health counseling. But we were working with people. We're based in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, which is a city near DC, and it's a city that has a lot of, unfortunately, homicides, overdoses, um, and just a, a lot of challenges for people in the community with poverty and access to be able to come to traditional counseling or support groups and and stigma that still exists about mental health support. And so we were always looking for creative alternatives. Uh, We also had experienced our own personal losses. I lost my dad when I was a teenager, um, when Eleanor was in her early 20s and pregnant with her first child, her mom died. And so we also had this lens of our own losses where we were looking at the grief support that was out there and thinking, would this have worked for us. And quite honestly, a lot of it wouldn't always have worked for us. And so we founded What's Your Grief in the online space to sort of fill this gap that we saw for people who are looking for something different. I always say, go back to like our original little What's Your Grief tagline was grief support for the rest of us, because we felt like there was sort of this traditional grief support. And then there were those of us it didn't quite work for. So that was where What's Your Grief started. And we started writing articles, trying to provide people with psychoeducation and creative expression outlets and ways to understand that we all have a lot of resources within us to help us cope with grief. We sometimes just need to figure out what those are. And so we've been doing that for a number of years and we had never intended to write a book. We'd had publishers who had approached us over the years because we'd done a lot of writing online and it never really seemed like what was the the right fit at the moment or calling to us. Um, And then early in COVID, we had a publisher reach out who said, you know, we love the website and we don't have an idea of what a book, what your grief book could look like. We love what you've created online and we're open to whatever you think that translates to in terms of a book. And 
I was still kind of like, oh, I don't think we want to write a book. But Eleanor was like, well, if not now, then when, you know, this, it feels like this is, we're not baking banana bread. So we might as well, you know, work on, work on a book. And so we decided to do that. And we really approached it in a very similar way to the website, which is, we didn't want to write another grief book just for the sake of writing a grief book. There are plenty of wonderful grief books out there. Um, we only wanted to do it if we felt like it was filling a gap, if there was a need that we could really meet. And one of the things we'd learned over the years was so many people came to us and came to What's Your Grief and said, you know, in the years after my loss, I bought dozens of books and I couldn't finish any of them and they were overwhelming. And I found your website and I found your social media. And it was such a relief to feel like I was finally getting helpful, digestible information that was manageable, where I could actually just read the right amount um, and not get overwhelmed by it. And we were like, well, we've kind of mastered, you know, that's something we've really focused on and prioritized. And if we could try to capture that in a book with the same spirit of our values that inspired the site, which is psychoeducation, creative expression, helping people to learn to understand their own grief a little bit more and their own coping a little bit more. That feels like something that we could get excited about writing. And so that's why the book takes the shape it does. It's written in the form of lists, which we thought, wow, people are maybe going to see that we've written a book of lists about grief and feel like, wow, that doesn't feel like it could be very substantive. But in a lot of ways, we wanted it to be manageable. We wanted it to have that feeling that the website does of you don't have to read it from start to finish. You can bounce around. You can find what speaks to you. You can find, you know, if, if you're not dealing with anger, you can skip all the stuff on anger and just go to the stuff that you are dealing with and not feel like you've you've missed anything. So that's what brought us to the book. And that's sort of what shaped how we structured it. And that's really interesting because in a way I haven't given you enough credit because of the, because I didn't give you the gravitas that the website does have. So the, the content of the website is so substantial. It's so informative and it's almost like it's two pronged. It's, you know, you've got sections for sort of like the everyday person or the non-professional person, I suppose, the people who are actually living that experience mm -hmm. and then you have a huge section of the website where it's for professionals you have the continuing education I've done one of your courses and that's sort of how I came across your material and it's almost like you've been able to lift the style of the website and encapsulate it in you know in in, in this book and that's what I really loved about reading it it felt genuine I love I love to hear that. I mean, that was our hope. It was so much our hope. And we and we very much thought, like, is this possible? And we had to forego a lot of things in the book. I mean, I think one of the things about the site that has always been a little bit unique is that we have shared a lot of our personal grief experience along with our professional and woven those things together. And we really left a lot of that out of the, the, the personal stuff. We left a lot of that out of the book. But we felt like it was worth that sacrifice in order to get a lot of the other things that we wanted, which was something that we hoped would be accessible for professionals and for people grieving. I think one of the things we've always seen ourselves as, as an organization, as a website, sort of an explainer site. We felt like there was this huge disconnect 
between all of what we had learned in mental health uh, and our training and that we'd learned about grief that we had thought, God, if I'd known this when I was in the throes of early grief, it would have been so helpful, but that didn't exist. And we were always, especially back in you know 2012, when we started What's Your Grief on the internet, there was this, this huge divide between sort of people writing personal grief blogs about their own personal grief experience, and then professionals publishing their articles that were really research-based articles, or occasionally some organizations writing some like pretty dry information about grief. And there really wasn't a lot in between. And we thought there has to be a way to write about the mental health concepts, write about the research that's coming out and do that in a way that speaks to grievers and also hopefully helps professionals who will be able to use that in their work with folks as well. So um, I, I'm glad that it felt like that came through in the book, that it captured what the site has always tried to do. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that really comes across is this freshness to it, because having, you know, my mom died two years ago now. And I remember shortly after sort of like looking for literature and looking for books. And by the way, why wasn't your book published two years ago, Lisa? Um, <laughs> we were probably just writing it then. <laughs> And I remember looking for that kind of information, everything looked really, can I say the word depressing? Uh, yes. It, like yes. this is colorful. This is, this looks like you want to pick it up. And, and even just the title and the colors and then the way you format the information. And I remember receiving, cause I'm on your mailing list. Um, just so everyone knows, this is not sponsored by the way, like <laughs> at all. I, you know, I do your, your, your courses. I, I bought the book. I enjoy the content and that's why I wanted to get you on just in case there are some skeptics out there. No, um, I, I completely understand that. <laughs> and I remember sort of receiving that email saying, Hey, we've published a book. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. This is going to be good. And then I saw lists to help you through any loss. And I was like, how does that work? And I wasn't sure. And I was like, okay, I trust them. I'm getting the book. And it's so different to what I thought it was going to be in a really good way. There's so much information that you pack in there, but in a very digestible way that doesn't feel like you're just reading prose and paragraph after paragraph. And I think, especially for me at the time, reading something that was too heavy would have been too much. Yeah, I completely, I, I completely agree. I think that's what we feel like so many people, I mean, there are those people who in their grief can pick up a dense grief book and really dig in and get through it. But I think a lot of people and the research backs this up, our ability to comprehend problem solving, uh, retaining memory, you know, all of those things are impacted in acute stress and when we're in early grief it's harder to be able to focus and process information and so what we really wanted was to be able to give enough but not too much and make it digestible and you know I have ADHD personally and so I think that in some ways helped um I always think you know, as a person with ADHD who loves to read and who has always been someone who loves to read, I also am very aware of how things are laid out and how that can really impact uh, our ability to approach a piece of writing and to retain things. So 
I think we really wanted it to be laid out in a way that felt manageable and accessible to people while feel, still feeling substantive. Yeah, and I really like part of the, well, sections in the chapters at the end of the chapter, and what you do in most, in all chapters, actually, you have a little section that says other lists to check out. And then it's almost like, you know, jump to here, jump to there. And that's kind of how I read the book. So I don't know if that's how you intended it, but I didn't read it in a linear fashion. I jumped from page 27 to page 19 to then page 68. Yeah. And I sort of went from list to list, almost like you would on the website. You just click a hyperlink. That's exactly. I mean, that was sort of when we were trying to think of how does our website translate into a book? It's sort of that. And with any website, right, you're reading an article and it's something that's obviously interesting to you. And within it, there's a, a hyperlink to another article on a relevant topic or you get to the bottom and it says related posts or related topics. But how do you do that in a book? And, you know, it's not quite as easy as clicking on a link, but we thought, well, if somebody's reading a list and they're like, oh, this, this list is really speaking to me and my experience, then if we can just let them know at the bottom, if you, if you liked this one, these are some other ones that are connected, that it could hopefully still provide that same experience for folks. Yeah. And I think that's what makes this book so special. You know, the, 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 the way it's written and the way the content is delivered feels I've said this so many times, but it feels fresh, but it also feels manageable and bite-sized in ways that you can stop whenever you need to stop and you don't have to have a bookmark to tell you where you stopped. Yes, definitely. Like you're not having that feeling like, okay, I want to get to the next good breaking point at the end of this chapter and it's still 27 pages away from now. You know, I know the way my brain works is like, I'll have that feeling of I've got to get to the end of this chapter before I put the book down for the evening. And in grief, sometimes it, it's just too much to do that. You know, I think it feels good to feel like, okay, there are breaking points all along the way and I can just take what I need and then take a little break and come back. Yeah, and I think especially, you know, when I was very sort of, when my mom had soon died, I was, you know, I was looking for that content and I was sort of picking up articles and printing stuff out and underlining stuff in a very, because that's my background, it's in a very academic way. And I was just reading it without sort of digesting. And what I really liked about reading the content for, in your book was I could just sit with some of the lists. I didn't have to finish the list. Yeah. If there was a really salient point, I would just sit there and be like, ah, that's what that is. Yes. So thank you for, for writing it in the way that you did. Well, I, uh, of course, and I, I think we're so grateful over the years, it really has been so much feedback from people grieving. And I always feel like it's going to, I, I don't know, sound disingenuous when I say this, but I, I truly, I cannot say it emphatically enough that over the years, so many people who have come to our site and who are grieving have just given us feedback about what was helpful and what wasn't helpful. And, you know, really helped us. You can, I could see, we could see over the years, what were the concepts that people really felt like, wow, just learning that this is a thing helped me so much, or this really, this shift was so meaningful for me. And then over the years, of course, we've written ton, tons of stuff that didn't make it into the book that people are like, oh, didn't need to know about this or whatever. But that really has helped us so much. It's people, I think, trusting us with their own grief stories, but also trusting us with the, the honest feedback about what has helped and what hasn't. That truly is, is what shaped the book. 
And so like you and Elena have been doing this for a while. So it's not like you've just been doing this for a couple of months or a couple of years and yeah. bam, you've got a website and bam, you've got a book and bam, you've got a podcast. What was the grief space like when you started versus what it looks like now? Because it feels, well, I'll let you answer that before I tell you what I think. Oh, sure. I, I mean, I it, it is radically different than it was in 2012, I think, when we were, and, and even before 2012, when we were really doing so much research and always looking for things for our clients and for ourselves. Um, but I think one of the things that has been pretty amazing about what has happened in the grief space is that COVID, for, for all that has been devastating about it, has given people an awareness about grief and a willingness to engage and talk about it online um, even more. I mean, that was already a trend that was happening, but I think e even more. And I think importantly, for both death and non-death losses, I think COVID was really, we have from the beginning been talking about non-death loss because it has been such an important part of our own stories. Eleanor's brother had a really severe traumatic brain injury, which, you know, changed uh, their entire family in so many ways, and which was certainly this non-death grief experience. And in my family, my sister had a long-term substance use disorder that was, you know, luckily she is alive and well and in recovery, um, but that made me so aware of how we can grieve people who are still alive and we can, you know, grieve losses that aren't typically talked about when we just talk about bereavement. And for years online, we would kind of talk about this and people would get really like protective that grief had to be about death. We would have people like sort of pushing back and saying, no, you shouldn't use the word grief if you're talking about a non-death loss. And COVID really shifted that so much, I think, because people were willing to talk about all of these losses that they were feeling both death and non-death losses and the grief responses and sharing that with people in the online space, looking for a sense of community um, on, you know, Instagram and TikTok and everywhere else around grief and, and feeling more comfortable, I think, with the idea that we can get meaningful mental health and grief support online, which in 2012 was still something that people thought, oh, I don't know about this. Other therapists would say to us, oh, don't you get nervous kind of, you know, navigating people's comments and dealing with this. It feels like that there's liability and what does your license cover you to do in the online space? How do you make sure that people know it's not medical advice or, you know, all of these things that I think now we've come a long way. And those are still questions we need to look at from obviously a, a professional and ethical perspective. But I think we've come so much further with just a comfort in having dialogues in the online space about these things. Absolutely. And it almost feels like, especially with this emergence of podcasts, and you've been podcasting for a very long time, because <laughs> I went back and I, and I did a deep dive and I, you know, I looked at the website and I looked at I listened to a lot of your podcasts and podcasts that you've done with other people as well. I'm like, you've been doing podcasts before podcasting was really popular. We did. I always joke that we had a podcast before Serial existed, the podcast that sort of put podcasts on the, on the map. And we've always been very informal, low budget, but we started podcasting in 2014 um, and it was just because we liked listening to podcasts. It seemed easy and accessible and uh, so it's been a long time that we 
again. And we also have just always been looking, like I said, for kind of creative ways to fill gaps. And at that point in the podcast space, I remember looking like searching Apple podcasts for grief podcasts and being like, there's nothing there's, why are there no podcasts about grief? And I, yeah, we just sort of said, well, yeah, we can, we can get some microphones and start recording and we'll just, we'll see where it goes. Um, which is a lot of how we've uh, approached things, but it has been a, a big change in the last 10 years. Yeah, and I'd say even, you know, you're talking about sort of like around sort of COVID and the pandemic time, even the emergence of podcasting specifically around grief has exploded. And whilst my podcast isn't grief specific, I do touch a lot about it because of my own experiences. Of course. But even if you just type in grief on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, dozens and dozens will come up now. And I think it's so refreshing to see that people are having these dialogues, that people are comfortable putting this information out there because you don't know who's going to listen to it or how they're going to react when they listen to it either. Yeah, I, I think it really is. So many people still have this experience that in their personal lives, their friends and family might not be comfortable talking about grief. Sadly, they may have had a pre-existing relationship with a counselor or therapist who isn't always trained in or comfortable with grief. Doctors aren't always comfortable with grief. You know, people can feel like, wow, all of these people who I thought would be able to talk to me about this comfortably are not. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, depending on, you know, people will go to their spiritual advisor and some of them are incredible and comfortable and some of them are really minimizing and, and don't do a good job talking to them about grief and sort of will make people feel like, well, as long as your faith is strong, you don't you don't need to grieve. Um, you know, you should just feel comfort in God's plan. And, you know, so people find all of, they go to all of these people and, and find sometimes that they're not getting what they'd hoped for or expected. So I think podcasts can be this great comfort to go, oh, wow, there are people out here who are talking about this and who are thinking about this. I wish they were in my personal life, but at least having them in the podcast space is a place to start. How important do you feel it is for people to be trained in grief counselling when they are disseminating that kind of information or working within a therapeutic setting in that, in, in that way? Yeah, this is such an important and tricky question because I think we need to be so cautious that we don't use academia as a way to sort of gate, gatekeep and create barriers from people just being able to provide human support to one another. Um, and at the same time, I think it is really important for us to be able to see that peer support is something that is incredibly valuable and important and people being able to just talk and tell their own story and then um, interview experts or things like that. It, it has an, an incredible space. But I do think it's really important also to have voices of people who have understood a lot of the research and what we know about grief, because unfortunately, one of the things that we know is that oftentimes people will feel like, oh, I've had this grief experience and I now want to use it to help other people. Um, I want to tell other people what helped me so it can help them. And what's wonderful is that it will help some other people. 
what's hard is that what helps one person will not help everyone. And that many times people have very strong convictions that their path and their own grief is somehow um, the best path or the path that is going to work for other people. And so we do have a lot of people out there who then will sometimes leave people grieving, feeling like, oh, wow, I'm grieving wrong because my grief doesn't look like their grief. Or, you know, they have now gone through this specific path and these things worked for them. And I've tried all of those things and none of those things have worked for me. Does that mean I'm a lost cause or my grief is, you know, I'm failing at grief. And so I think one of the things that mental health professionals or grief professionals do who are trained is do a lot of work in helping people to understand the huge spectrum of what grief can look like, about what coping can look like, about learning to understand our own individual grief, what are the um, ways to understand one's own life experience and one's own personality and one's own other dispositions and leanings to figure out each each individual's path to grief. And so I think, you know, both are important. Having people who have life experience and don't necessarily have that training in one in one space, but also making sure we have a space for people who have that training as well. And this is why I speak to people like you, because whilst I have the life experience and I have the psychology background, I don't have the specific training set skills. And you, but whilst you're talking, you reminded me of um, how different, or maybe it isn't, it feels different, how different it is, you know, in the US versus the UK whereby um, I'm not from the UK specifically, but um, so when my mum died, I remember, you know, palliative care um, was very involved and they were amazing. They were amazing. And I was able to access some therapy shortly after through them. And it was six sessions and I knew it was boundary. It was very, it was very, it was going to be very short. And then I moved, when I came back to the UK, I worked with a different therapist online. And what I found was one, I couldn't find anyone specifically that specialized with grief. So I went with, I don't know how, I'm probably gonna say this wrong, but please don't cancel me for this, but like a, a general therapist. Yeah. Like, you know, just, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember the language being very different. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously from reading some of your articles as well, I remember distinctly this therapist saying, you know, what did they say? They said, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was like, you know, when you were grieving before, which to me, I remember it struck me. And I, I remember, you know, it, it made a mental note and it made me stop what I was saying because it implied that that grieving process had stopped or mm -hmm. was in the past. Yeah. And I got really angry. Mm -hmm. Obviously not at the time I went away and I was just fuming, but I thought, that's not in the past. That yes. I'm still grieving. Oh, absolutely. And and each and each new loss then just adds layers to the past losses. I mean, I think we are just our, our grief is an constantly ongoing and evolving process. But I do think that sometimes therapists who are not trained in grief, um, unfortunately have some of the same misconceptions that society has, you know, some, unfortunately there's, and they did some research about this, how many therapists out there still think the five stages of grief are like the gold standard. Um, and it just breaks my heart when you see those numbers, but oftentimes it's because 
you can go through an entire master's or PhD program in many different types of mental health, psychology, and not ever be required to take any coursework in grief. And so people are just sort of pulling from maybe a little bit that they got here and there. And sometimes that was 30 years ago. And so it really does leave us sometimes in these sessions with folks who do say things that end up making us feel like our grief isn't understood, um, which yeah, is a, is a shame. I'm I'm sorry that that happened to you because I know it's like a, it's a bad feeling when that happens when you feel like wow this this person just doesn't understand that this is an ongoing this is an ongoing process. Yeah, and it was just from listening to other podcasts and reading other material that I felt a bit more comfortable knowing actually that grief doesn't have to stop right there. Mm-hmm. Stop ever. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's what I thought. I'm like okay. I'm, I'm good with that. It's scary in a way to think that never stops as well. And one of the things that you write about in the book are, you know, the way different people will grieve and different types of grievers. And I think I'm more of an intuitive griever and I threw myself straight into therapy and I wanted to do all the talking therapy that was offered. And what I like is that you sort of lay out different types of people who, who grieve, but also, you know, how that can shape and that can change as well. It doesn't have to be the one thing all the time. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that uh, sometimes understanding those different types of grievers or the ways that our personality can affect how we grieve, knowing that can help us to both understand it more in ourselves, understand it in the people around us, but also see that it changes and evolves and that there can be benefits sometimes in even pushing ourselves um pushing ourselves outside of our normal comfort zone you know i think that i'm more of an instrumental griever and you know for people who, who don't know these terms intuitive grievers tend to want to as you described process their emotions really feel their emotions um when it comes to grief and when they describe their grief often that those emotional terms really resonate and it's a way to be able to express and instrumental grievers tend to describe their grief sometimes in more uh, cognitive ways and so that in practical terms the difference might be that one person might say gosh I feel so hopeless or I feel this despair thinking about the future um, where it is kind of a very intuitive way to connect with grief. And an instrumental person might say something like, I just, I wake up every morning and I just can't believe I'll never talk to her again. I can't believe I'll never see her again. I didn't describe any specific emotion about that. I just described the thought that I keep having. And it can be a little bit more um, physical and action oriented. Um, and people don't necessarily as much want to sit down and kind of process the emotions. But it's good to sometimes push ourselves into either space. And I know for me, I've many times said so much helpful has come from for me from understanding that I am more instrumental, but also pushing myself to some of the intuitive ways of coping. Um, And also for others, I think Eleanor would say she's very much more intuitive but has really found that certain things that are a little bit more instrumental in their coping have really helped her and that she has, you know, we've both, I think, seen the way that it has changed over time for us. So when we understand those things, I do think it can really 
have an impact on how we seek support and how we understand ourselves. Mm. And I think for me, it helped me understand how other people in my circle were grieving and how different that looked and how to be okay with that because that's just their process. And yes. I think for me, what I did was a lot of comparison mm-hmm. very early on. It's like, well, I'm you know, crying all the time and I'm going and doing the therapy, I'm doing the work and other people in my circle weren't. They were, you know, jumping straight into work or, you know, and I, and I, and I, I felt, I, I felt I wasn't grieving the right way because other people weren't grieving in the same way. And that's what reading this, even two years on, was able, allowed me to do, was just understand the way other people were grieving and be okay with that. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, when we can accept our own grief process, when we can accept other people's grief process and say, we don't have to compare, or we can just say that we're all on our own unique journey, um, that that goes such a long way. And, you know, what you did was maybe think you were grieving wrong. I think what sometimes other people do is they think other people are grieving wrong and they say, oh, well, you, you know, if you're not going to therapy or you're not crying, you must be avoiding or compartmentalizing. Sometimes people are, but sometimes it's just that they're grieving in a different way. And the research shows that neither intuitive nor instrumental. It's not that one is healthier than the other or better than the other. It's just that we do it differently. And so being able to sit in that place and just say, it looks different for all of us is so important. Yeah. Another thing that I got from your book that really resonated with me was, and you mentioned it earlier, is grieving somebody who hasn't died. And related to that, you also sort of um, map out different types of grief. Mm-hmm. And that to me was such an important way to sort of grasp one, how processes work. And I remember one of your very early on your TikToks, I think it was, was on anticipatory grief. Yeah. And I remember at the time when my when my mom was in hospital and going through what she was going through, there was no word for it. And I was trying to describe it. And I, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Yes. I remember watching your TikTok and I'm like, oh, finally, someone gets this. And someone's put a label to this because it actually exists. Yes. And that was huge for me. Uh, well, and it's so interesting, right? Because I think when we say that the research shows that in grief, that normalization and validation goes so far. That sounds abstract. People are like, well, what does that mean? But sometimes what labels do, knowing there's a word for something we're experiencing, it's just so validating because it's like, oh yes, this internal experience I'm having, I'm not the only one. It's a real thing. It happens to people. They have a name for it. That There can be a real reassurance in that. And it can be a little bit less isolating when we know that this is something that other people who are who who have family members or friends who are dying are also experiencing even if we're not talking to those other people even if we don't know them there's something that can be a little bit comforting about just knowing that that there are other people who are going through this too and anticipatory grief oftentimes people will in some sense have this feeling of i do know that i am grieving the 
bits of the person that is are disappearing slowly because of the illness or because you know of this time I know that I'm this awareness I have that it might not know when death is coming but I do know that it is eventually coming um that with that it is bringing all the things that often come after a loss as well that when we know that that process is sort of has the name grief that we're allowed to call it grief that we don't have to wait for someone to have died to be able to say I am starting to grieve certain things even while they're still here um I think that that can really help us to own some of those emotions we're having and some of those experiences and feel more comfortable talking about it with other people if we can just label that and say yeah anticipatory grief that's what I'm feeling right now yeah and this is where I feel like this is somewhat of a divide between sort of like the U.S. education around grief versus the U.K. base because no one was telling me oh this is what you're going through or you know this is what this is called I sort of had to like fumble around and sort of figure it out on my own which is which is fine and it's a process but it's also really hard when you see the person you know disappearing literally in yes. front of you you don't have the resources to you know to, to look at the articles and ask people you know you just don't you want someone to just package it a little bit for you and just nudge you a little oh uh, yeah that's exactly it and it, it's funny one of the things that we when we created What's Your Grief as a website when we had worked in the hospital setting with people whose loved ones had had just died or were dying. We were like, why aren't there better little, there were these terrible booklets and brochures that they had that were, it looked like they had been created in the mid-1960s that were very generic about you know, is, is your loved one is dying. And they said very little substantive information. And we really struggled with that because we did feel like people need something packaged. They need something meaningful. There's this opportunity here if we're giving them these little booklets or brochures, but what's in them really isn't useful. And so when we started the website, just a couple of years later, one of the things that we did was we wrote our own brochures and booklets for hospitals and hospices that were on things like anticipatory grief or grieving an overdose death or, you know, these very specific things that we felt like we don't, people don't need this sort of very generic, vague kind of 1960s idea of what grief looks like. We need to give people really specific information about these unique experiences that often no one has named or labeled for them before. And so they don't know what to expect or if it's normal or if it's not normal. So that was our hope. And we're so grateful that many hospices in the U.S. do use that booklet, our, our little anticipatory grief, you know, it's like a little 12 page booklet, but that helps people to understand that experience that they're going through. And I hope that that will continue to spread, you know, in the UK and in other, not our booklet necessarily, but any materials like that, that can help people to be able to, in the moment that they need it, not have to be digging around YouTube or Google or TikTok, but be able to have someone there in palliative care really just give them what they need. Yeah. And I remember at the time sort of, because obviously the algorithm works in very wonderful and mysterious ways. And so when I liked your video, then other things would come and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm ready now. 
bring it. I can handle yes. this now. <laughs> That's what was so lovely about sort of having that label and being able to then Google and, and, and understand what that was because nobody was telling me at the time. Oh, absolutely. I love the, you know, there's this woman who we follow, I think her name is hospice nurse, Julie. And she's just this hospice nurse who's just, but she's just always, you know, sharing these things about hospice and palliative care that are just normalizing things. And I do feel like, oh, right. She, people are finding her in that moment where for some reason the algorithm has identified that they could really use a hospice nurse to just explain some stuff that maybe their hospice isn't doing a great job explaining. And I, I love that about the algorithm that it can do that. Yeah, I have so much love for hospice nurse Julie. I've had her on the podcast as well. Oh, amazing. And the content that she produces is just amazing. It is. It is. I, I cannot sing her praises enough. She's amazing. Yeah. And one of the other things that you mentioned earlier, which at the time of reading sort of jarred me a little bit in a good way because it prompted me to be like, well, why is that? You mentioned that, you know, people still think of these, of the stages of grief being those five stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it was never meant to encapsulate that anyway. And I'm, and I'm sure, I'm sure because I felt it at the time, you know, people listening be like, what do you mean that there are no five stages of grief or that's supposed to be different? I wonder if you could just explain what, what that means. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, so I think knowing the context is so important, right? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was a, a physician who was working with people who were dying, not with people who were grieving. And we owe so much of a debt of gratitude to her for the entire hospice and palliative movement and the discussions that came from her work about what we can do to help people to die well, whatever that means. Um, but she identified her five stages of grief in the book on death and dying about death and dying. They were the five stages that she observed from the time of the diagnosis of a terminal illness to the point of that person's death. And she observed those in the dying person. Um, they were not something that she originally was considering or writing for people who were grieving. When her work went out from almost immediately, her work was uh, incredibly well received and discussed and really created this movement of dialogue around end of life. But it was a lot of other people who started applying her five stages to grief. And interestingly, what happened over the course of her career is many years later, towards the end of her life, um, she wrote a follow up book called On Grief and Grieving. And in that book, she looks at the five stages as a, a applied to grief. And she, if you read that book, I mean, the very beginning of the book is sort of, it feels like this disclaimer from her that's like, this isn't what I intended. You know, I wasn't thinking about these stages in this way applied to grief. I certainly never intended them to be linear to the, be exhaustive for people to think that they had an end point and that it implied that grief would go away at, at, at some point you know she's very clear that she never intended any of that um and then you know but she does write how they may why she thinks they may have re resonated with people who are grieving and what a lot of the subsequent research and even right after her work was published there was a lot of criticism as well of being well received of you know, the stages are kind of confusing, like some of them are emotional states like anger, 
and some of them are, you know, bargaining, bargaining is like this active price, not an emotion. Uh, like what exactly are they? They felt very passive. There was a, so then there was this research that started happening to say, do people grieve in stages? Are they, are they accurate? Um, and the research has been very, very mixed. It's very complicated to research this because there's a couple of diff different questions. It's, you know, there's the question of do most people grieving at some point feel those different five stages? Yeah, probably a lot of people do feel some of them. Is it at all exhaustive, linear, in order? You know, any no, absolutely not. There's George Bonanno is this well-known grief researcher at Columbia University in New York. And, you know, he did all this research that was like, turns out that the most common early emotion that people in his research felt was acceptance, um, which is interesting because I think that points a little bit to the confusion around the word acceptance too. Like, what does that word really mean? Um, but so what we've learned in the research is that there is huge diversity in the ways that people grieve, that when people do believe that they will grieve according to the five stages, we know that that actually tends to make adjustment to grief harder because they tend to be comparing themselves to something and then feeling like if it's not evolving through these five stages as they expected, that something must be wrong or that they're they're not grieving properly. So what we know now is that so much of grief depends on our own personality, the loss, each particular relationship is unique. So the way that I grieve after my mom has died might look very different than the way I grieve after my husband's death. You know, those things, just because it's grief, just because it's this, you're the same person doesn't mean that your grief will look the same. Other pre-existing things going on in your life, life stressors at the time of the loss can dramatically change the trajectory of grief. If I have four kids at home that I'm that are also grieving who I'm trying to take care of and that is consuming a lot of my time and energy that's going to have a real impact on maybe how much time and attention I give to my grief whether it's adaptive for me to compartmentalize certain things for a little while in order to just get through that survival of taking care of my kids and then I come back and I attend to some of that grief those grief things later um, and that's that's normal. That's not something that's necessarily a problem. So being able to have that openness to know that though those five stages, we owe such a debt of gratitude to where those came from and what they did for the end of life world. I think even Kubler-Ross herself really said, I never intended this to be something where people felt like they should compare themselves in grief to these five stages and feel like they were the be all and the end all of how we grieve. That's so interesting. And I remember listening and reading that rather for the first time and feeling, well, what? Like this is this is what's been in 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 culture for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And it's not like that. Like, well, what is it then? And and what I do love is that you know you go through different theories of grief and different ways that stages can progress and regress and how that is all changeable um, in the book. And I'm wondering then, at what point 
do are people ready for this? At what point, not just your book, but ready for this information? Because mm-hmm. I feel like through you know talking to experts like you and and hospice nurse Julie and collecting the books and reading the material, whenever someone and I had someone close to me had um, experienced a loss, and I was ready to be like, "Here's everything I have." Let me tell you, I've done all the research, <laughs> right? And yeah. I've done the podcast and listened to this first, and then that one, and then this one. At what point do you feel people are ready? Yeah, I wish there was an easy answer to this question. I, I, you know, I think we, I wish I could say, oh, this is one of, it, it's going to be helpful for people. I think it really depends on the person. I think there are some people who from very early on, and you may very well know this from your experience and training as well, like that you, you meet people who they're in any sort of setting and they're like furiously taking notes and they're looking everything up on Google and they want to understand and they process through learning and that's really helpful for them. And some of those people like day four, they're like, okay, I'm, you know, this is helping me. This is a way that I'm, I like to learn and process in that way. And then there are other people who are just like, I need to process alone, right? I need to, or I need to just be with my own experience. I don't need to hear the information about other people's experience. I don't care what the research says. I don't, you know, I just need to be with myself for a bit. And so I always tell people when supporting friends or family or anyone else, uh, what I always do is sort of check in with people and say like, Hey, I have, I have a couple of things that may be really useful for you. Maybe not. I don't know if you're interested in them now or in six months from now, um, but let me know. I do have a couple of books that really helped me or a couple of podcasts that were really great. Um, if you want me to share those things with you, I'm happy to do that. But to sort of let people know, I'm not forcing this on you. If I give you these things, I'm not going to expect you to like come back and report out to me that you read them um, and let people have some control over that. Because um, often we know if we give ourselves the permission to say it looks differently for all of us, we often can start to figure out what we need and what we don't need. I think a lot of the pressure comes from when we try to force our grief into the pigeon, uh, some sort of pigeonhole or to look like someone else's that we start to feel disconnected from our own needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I already have like a couple of people that I bought extra copies and I'm just ready to give them your book and I'm like, wait, it's not time yet. <gasps> it'll end up becoming like, you know, we just pass around the same copy and it'll be like the sisterhood of the traveling pants kind of thing. <laughs> I love that. And I'm like, and I've already, and that's why like, I've already inscribed like my mom's information on the on the front page. And I'm just like, this is what helped me now. Take yeah. what you will from it. Absolutely. And I think that that's the, that's often the the best that thing that we can do is to say, you know, this helped me, it may help you, it may not like, you know, but part of that, part of the process with grieving, it's trial and error in a lot of ways. And it's looking back in the past. I mean, I say this with working with folks all the time is even if you've never been through a death before or something as devastating as what you're going through now, just in other hard times in your life, what has helped you? Has it been creative expression? Has it been that you love listening to music that kind of connects with those emotions? 
Has it been that you, a therapist has been helpful? Has it been that reading has been helpful? You know, it, lean into the things that have helped in the past, start experimenting and know that in the beginning, one thing might really help. And then later it's not useful at all. And something that didn't work at all in the beginning, all of a sudden, nine months out, 12 months out is exactly what you need. So be ready to come back and revisit things. Don't just rule them out uh, altogether. Yeah. And I think I'm now in that stage when you published the book that I was ready to receive that information in a very non-judgmental from to myself kind of way. And that's yeah. what I really appreciated about the way you write is that it's not, here's the stuff, now go do this, because that's not what it's about at all. It's here's all this information. And I felt hugely validated by it. And I was like, huh, okay, now the internal processing works. Now, now the work work, now the work starts again for me. Yes. Yes. I think that's for me, that's how I, I feel like every time I learn something new about mental health in general, that's, you know, that's how I feel. It's like, oh, okay, now I've, I've learned this thing and now it allows me to go back to myself in new and different ways and figure out where this fits in my own experience. And that's something that's always really um, helped me. So we always hope to be able to give that to other people in some way about grief. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest, one of the big things that I took away from the book was that having this feeling of grief will change you. And that was hugely validating for me because for a long time I was trying to get back to what I was like before my mom. Mm -hmm. And I was like, actually, I don't think I, I don't need to and I don't want to anymore. I, I think that's such a an important moment for people in grief is sometimes to have that moment of like, this is, I'm okay with the idea that this has changed me because that person changed me. And of course their loss has changed me. Like what, why would I want to go back to who I was before? And I think when we start to see that grief, isn't just pain, like our grief is so many other things it's, uh, and that the pain evolves and changes and our pain is not our connection. You know, we think early on because the pain is so present. We think our, our pain is the connection to the person who died. And so if our pain is starting to change or dissipate, or we're having good days that we feel like our connection must be disappearing when in fact it can for many people, it can be the opposite. It can be that when our pain is less overpowering, it creates a space for a deeper, a different kind of connection, you know, to be able to now talk about the person again without worrying that you're going to start to cry or to go back to those places that meant so much, but that in early grief, you felt like I can't even drive by that place again because it's too overwhelming. And actually when that pain, when we learn to carry that pain differently, it can create this space for the connection to actually feel deeper. And I think that for a lot of us is a solace going forward. And we think I, I want this type of grief to stay with me. I want to be changed in these ways because that's a part of who I am now. I feel like I should be paying you for therapy right now because this feels incredibly cathartic in the way that I'm in that transition where I was holding on to the pain because that felt like I was connecting with my mom yeah. and it's through that work and through listening to you and reading and stuff like that that I'm like actually my connection isn't with the pain my connection is with the person and that changes 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is so huge. I mean, you look at all the things, you know, like all the ways your mom probably shaped you and who you are. Like, of course, the connection is all the other things. But I think that the pain of grief is so overwhelming at first that it really does feel like that's the connection. (laughs) And so it's hard to imagine that it's not, even though when we kind of start to be able to carry the pain and find new ways to be able to let certain parts of it go, it really, it really allows us to see all the other connections. Definitely. And to just to make space for other things to come in the absence of the pain. Yes. I love that. It's brilliant. I'm going to have to turn that into a TikTok sound or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so true though. And, and the, and that I think sometimes we're scared to label the, the growth, you know, I think post-traumatic growth literature is really powerful and it it shows that when we go through these difficult and devastating and potentially traumatic losses and events in our lives that sometimes we do experience growth from those experiences and sometimes I think we don't want to say that because we're like that sounds like I'm grateful for the loss, which of course is not at all what like we'd we'd trade all the growth back if we could change the outcome and have the person back. But I think sometimes again, in in terms of that initial thought of it, I'm trying to go back to normal or what I should be doing is trying to get back to my old self versus recognizing this ongoing change in us. It, is that sometimes these losses they give us clarity. They help us to appreciate relationships in new and different ways, relationships with the people who are gone, but also relationships with the people who are still here. Yeah, They help us to have empathy in different ways for people that maybe we didn't have before or connections. There's so many things. And so again, I think when we can think of the ways that grief shapes us, it's not all good. Like I'm certainly more you know, jaded and pessimistic than I probably once was at some point before some of the losses in my life. But being able to hold both and appreciate that and be able to say it's changed, grief has changed me in some wonderful ways and some terrible ways. And I'm just here for all of them and, and able to embrace them all. I think that's just, I think that's such a wonderful way to encapsulate that whole process. It sucks. And I wish it on, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but it has changed my priorities. It's changed the way I connect with people. It's changed how I connect with patients. Yes. In a way I wasn't expecting. Yes. And it's okay. And I think that like being able to say that and, and knowing that that is, um, yeah, that there's nothing wrong with saying that. I think sometimes we, we really get hung up on the idea that that sounds weird to be grateful for things that came from grief but we we often are um yeah thank you and Eleanor for writing this book because it's been such a huge source of solace for me and validation and I'm sure other people resonate with that as well um just in case people aren't aware of where to find you, where can people find you online and, and the podcast and such? Yeah, sure. We we keep it pretty simple. We're just what's your grief everywhere. So we're what's your grief.com. Our podcast is what's your grief. 
the book is What's Your Grief and everywhere on social, we're at What's Your Grief. So um, it's pretty easy to find us in any of those spaces. And we're we're on most of the so most social media um, outlets and most podcasting, most places you get your podcasts, you can find us. Yeah, you're pretty easy to find, which is helpful. I'll link all of that in the show notes below and as well as a link to the book, at least in the UK, um, which is so easy to find and order and it just came straight away. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Uh, of course, thank you so much for having me. And it was so nice, you know, putting a book into the world. One thing that's very different than all other outlets we're used to online is that we don't really get feedback in the same way. So it's nice to talk to someone who's like actually read the book and found it helpful. I, I really appreciated hearing from you about it. Anytime, anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks.